0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, today it's a Buddhist recipe for handling turmoil. Of course, we all know, at least intellectually, that change is inevitable, impermanence is non-negotiable, but somehow it can feel surprising, maybe even unnatural or wrong, when we personally hit turbulence. The Buddha had a lot to say about this, so does our guest. Kyra Jewel lingo was on the show a few months ago. We liked her so much, we asked her to come back when her new book came out, and it's now out. The book is called We Were Made for These Times, 10 Lessons on Moving Through Change, Loss, and Disruption. In this conversation, we talk about some of those 10 strategies, including waking up to what's happening right now, trusting the unknown, easier said than done, a Buddhist list called the five remembrances, how gratitude helps in times of disruption, and accepting what is and why this is different from resignation or passivity. We start, though, with a personal story about an earthquake in Kyra Jules' own life. She spent 15 years as a Buddhist nun and then decided to leave, which, as you will hear, caused no small amount of disruption. A few technical notes. You're going to hear some bird sounds and an occasional lawnmower or what we think was a lawnmower in the background here, the perils of making a podcast in a pandemic. Heads up, there are also a few brief mentions here of domestic violence, abuse, the suffering of refugees and war. Again, just a little heads up there. Also, one big promotional item before we dive in. I need to warn you about a new upstart meditation teacher who's Closing in on my gig, his name is Matthew Hepburn, and he's been a friend and colleague for many years. Last week, he launched his own podcast. It's called 20% Happier, and it's available exclusively in the 10% Happier app. On the 20% Happier podcast, Matthew speaks with a different guest every episode. Each guest is a layperson who meditates, and they come on the show because they have a struggle and need help understanding how the practice of meditation can help them with that struggle. I'm a huge fan of Matthew. I think you're going to get a lot out of listening to him work, and that's really what this is. I I keep calling it mindful eavesdropping. You get to listen in on a rarely heard and, I think, poorly understood process between meditation teacher and student. Matthew's also very funny. To listen to 20% Happier, download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps. Open it up and tap on the podcasts tab. Okay, we'll get started with Kyra Jewell right after this. Jewel Lingo, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Dan. Really good to be back.
0: I agree. I was thinking that an alternate title for your book could be, you know, For When the Poop Hits the Fan. <laughs> and I don't want to artificially narrow the audience for you because the poop is always hitting the fan, given the non-negotiable law of impermanence. Everything's changing all the time. And I'm curious, why did you get interested in this subject personally?
1: I really appreciated this message from Clarissa Pinkola Estes that when things get really tough and things don't feel like they're supposed to be happening the way they, they should be, that's exactly where we need to be, <laughs> that, that we're actually right in the place that we need to be. And we have what we need to be in that place. And so that was the inspiration for the title of the book. But I really was drawn to address how do we be with really tough times? Because it's something I felt I actually knew I could say something about that because I experienced going through some pretty tight spaces of kind of birth canal. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to make it, you know, particularly this transition from being a nun to being a a layperson, to leaving the robes. That was a pretty harrowing few years of my life where I really didn't know what was going to happen to me. And so to be on the other side of that and to be able to look back and see, well, what was it that helped me move through such a really tough time was what I thought, well, I actually have personal experience of this. I can stand behind this and say, this is what helped this is where I found sustenance and stability.
0: I'd love to hear more about that experience. If memory serves from reading a little bit about you, you, you actually grew up in a sort of Christian semi-monastic or monastic style community that your parents raised you in. Went off to Stanford and then you were looking around for your own spiritual teacher and found Thich Nhat Hanh. Who has a the Plum Village monastery in southern France and you were a nun for 15 years. And what provoked you to leave and why was that so wrenching?
1: Well, it's good to go back to how I grew up because, you know, basically pretty much my whole life until 40, I was in some kind of community. So I I grew up in this residential community where my parents were living. It was a family religious order based on a monastic Christian structure where you it wasn't a consumer lifestyle you don't have a car you don't have your private bank account you're not looking after your own family and your own self you're, whatever you earn you give to the community and everyone would get a little stipend and we got you know hand-me-down clothes we very occasionally got to go out to eat and we'd sign up on the community's car to get the car you know is that kind of super simple in terms of material living and you know in service to the poor and to you know urban communities rural communities slums building wells and and community centers and schools and different places around the world so i had this really communal experience then in college i went right to the most communal living situations i could find which were co-ops on on stanford's campus and you know, where we all took turns cooking, cleaning, so those were the the places I gravitated toward. And as soon as I got out of Stanford, it was where can I find a a spiritual teacher, a spiritual community? So basically, what was so huge about leaving the monastery at age forty was I realized as I looked back, I had spent pretty much my whole life in community, and you know to give great credit to my monastic community in in the Plum Village tradition, nobody slammed me or judged me or or kind of tried to guilt trip me about leaving when I really got clear that I I needed to take a break and check it out from outside the monastery, what my path was going to be. But everybody was sad and really had a strong preference of what they would prefer me to do. So that was also what made that moment so kind of intense was it was like I'd always done things that were sort of supported by the people around me or the, the, you know, the people I respected. And this was the first time I was stepping off the ledge without any real guaranteed place that I was going to land.
0: A massive life change. Why did you want to do it?
1: I think there was something I needed to complete and to break through that I could only do outside of the monastery, and it was this like, you know, like a piece of sand starts to irritate the inside of an oyster. That oyster, there was something that was just getting had gotten inside of me that was irritating and irritating and growing and growing. This like something has to give here. I think there really was a, a sense that I couldn't quite. You know, I couldn't see the whole picture, but there was just little pieces that I could see at a time that were telling me, this isn't where you need to be anymore. Not because it's not a beautiful life and not because it hasn't been a really wonderful life for me. You know, every moment it was a really precious experience, but I had to let it go because something else needed to come. And just on one level, like the fact that I'd always been in community, There was this sense that I needed to individuate (laughs) in some way and just, you know, meet the challenge of being in the world as me, like without the protective skin of the community, like go through what it's like to, you know, start to pay taxes for the first time and learn how to text and use the cell phone and like clean up my own apartment regularly shop for myself, cook for myself. And I had lived my life being held in a certain way on many different levels. And so to have that come apart, that was its own kind of initiation (laughs) into, okay, this is what I've been teaching lay people all these years, but I haven't known the challenges (laughs) of... Making it work and the loneliness of like coming back to my apartment and eating alone. Like I had never eaten alone as a regular feature of my life. Growing up in community, we always ate with other people. Living in co-ops on campus, we ate together in the monastery. I mean, this beautiful practice of like you have people that you're attentive to as you eat. And that was like such a, a moment in the day of, of real, an ache to just be there with my food by myself. I'm so glad that I had a chance to touch that because otherwise I wouldn't have known what that experience is for so many people.
0: Curious, how's it going now? How many years has it been since you left and are you still eating alone? I know you're not because you've been on the (laughs) show before and you talked about having a partner, so I don't know why I asked that question, but how's it going?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I disrobed in 2015, so I left the monastic path then. So it's been six years. You know, it's a huge change on one level, and it's on another level. I feel like the core or essence of what I'm doing is not that different from when I was a nun in terms of how I feel about my connection to my teacher, Thich Han, and other teachers uh, that I've studied with uh, since leaving. In terms of what I do with my day, which is practice, teach, (laughs) mentor, you know, work with folks one-on-one or couples or groups. Most of what I'm doing throughout the day is supporting myself, supporting other people to be grounded in the present moment and to live our lives deeply. And that's what I was doing in the monastery. I just had more people around me that were doing the same thing. So, I mean, what's different now is one thing I really noticed when I left was how much faster life moved after I left the monastery, that that there really is this buffer around you in the monastery. Things move slower. And when I left, I didn't have that buffer. And so it was me meeting the world crash, you know, and I moved to DC, which right at beginning of 2016. So it was the campaign year of (laughs) Trump and Bernie. And so it was a hyper kind of external, you know, this collective consciousness in DC was a very intense, energetic field. And so then it was like, oh, I have to be checking email. I have to be creating a website. I have to (laughs) be teaching, thus learning all the admin around, you know, being basically a self-employed meditation mindfulness teacher. I'm trying to do online dating, trying to, you know, take care of my health, you know, connect with my family. And everyone can contact me now. And, you know, and also just like wanting to create new friendships because that was something that was so wonderful, In the monastery, was you had you know beautiful spiritual friendships with monastics, with lay people who would come. So you're you know I'm I'm trying to like recreate all these parts of my life in a setting that's moving at a at a very different pace than what I was used to, and with very different values. You know, sometimes I felt like Rip Van Winkle or something, where I've been gone so much longer than it seems, or there's all these things that have changed, and there's all these ways I don't understand or. Just don't have the experiences other people have. Yeah, so how it is now, yeah, I do have a partner who also has a very deep spiritual practice and kind of had some somewhat similar path to me. Not with vows, but he was working with homeless youth and started an organization to care for homeless young people and was just very dedicated to his spiritual practice and has become an Episcopal priest and we really practice together. Like we meditate in the mornings. We, we do have busy times where it's harder to make our schedule stick. But that is our aspiration to really have a daily practice. And we read spiritual books together, Buddhist and Christian. We want to have a group that we lead together, Buddhist and Christian contemplative kind of mystical teachings, practices. Meeting him was like... There was a clarity about how I'm going to manifest maybe more of of what took me out of the monastery, having met someone that shares a similar vision of of service and also deep personal practice, that what we do in the world is coming from this place of our own transformation.
0: So it sounds like, if I understand it correctly, you learned a lot. You kind of battle-tested the the Buddhist recipe for handling change and disruption during this period of time. And those lessons are now the spine of this book that you're coming out with. And I want to I dive into some of the lessons. We we'll probably won't hit all of them, but I think it's worth uh, checking out as many as we can. One of the first is, I think you describe it as coming home, but you might also just describe it as waking up to whatever's happening right now. How is, you know, to use the, the cliched phraseology, being in the present moment, how is that helpful in a time of tumult?
1: You know, when things are really tough, we tend to lose track of some really important perspectives and we can really get caught in the outer situation and not track what's happening inside of us, or what our responses to the external situation are. And that can just feed that situation so that it gets even more out of control, even more overwhelming. So this coming home is really about, there are things happening even in the midst of tumult that we can be aware of, and that can support us. That can be a kind of anchor or thread connecting us to what we really know because we can forget what we really know and so this being in the present moment is the simple act of taking a breath you know we can get so anxious right we can convince ourselves that we can't make it through whatever's happening or about to happen and just taking a breath in the midst of that you know, fear or terror or panic, it allows space for more than that feeling to be there. And so feeling our feet, feeling our hands, noticing clothing on our skin, it's bringing more of us online so that we can take in, there's a lot of things happening, not just... This strong emotion in this moment, there is that I'm still alive, that I can breathe, that I can notice the colors in my surroundings. It's taking control of where we put our attention. Because yes, that situation is there and it's painful and it needs care, but it needs our attention in a a wise way. And knowing that other things are happening alongside that difficult experience is a wise place to put our attention because we can convince ourselves this is the only thing that's happening in this moment and then it becomes you know too much so this all the things that are happening in the present moment are kind of places that can provide us with some refuge some some kind of strength so that when we need to meet these Intense experiences, uh, we meet them with more wisdom, more of what's real.
0: Much more of my conversation with Kyra Jewel Lingo right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees.
2: Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
0: It's interesting because anxiety is, I think, by definition, future-oriented. And I, I believe your argument is that the best way to take care of the future is to take care of the present.
1: Yeah. And that's um, from from Thich Nhat Hanh, a teaching that I really love, that, you know, what is the future made of but this moment? So if we can care for what's happening right here— then the future is cared for but we often sacrifice what's happening in the present to try to control or determine the outcome of the future and that doesn't serve us because we're missing what's happening now so we'll miss what happens in the future (laughs) i mean i'm sure we've all experienced that what happens when we get into a rush like if we're late and we have to rush Once we get to where we are, it takes a while to like come out of that spin and we can, we can end up doing a lot of other things artificially rushed, right? Because of that one experience of, oh my God, I'm late. I got to get to work or got to make the bus or whatever. Like we get to that place and then we're like, you know, a maniac on our phones or doing stuff we don't need to do, you know, we can spin out. And so then how have we, By rushing, by leaning into the future, how have we done ourselves a service, really? Because when we get to the meeting or whatever it is, we're worked up, we're not our best self. But if we can, you know, be with the, the stressful experience in the moment and hold it and care for it and, you know, recognize what's going on in ourselves, then for one thing, we don't have the ability to control what's going to happen <laughs> in the future. So, by actually paying attention to what's here, we realize oh, well, this is what I do have some say over is what's happening in the present. And I can actually relate to that with wisdom by connecting fully to what this is. And that is what becomes the next moment, and the next moment, and the next. And so, it's actually really important. You know, this kind of classic story of, of Thay, of Thich Nhat Hanh teaching a student, you know, who, he saw this student rushing as he was washing dishes because he wanted to get back to the, the real stuff happening in the living room, which was conversation with Thich Nhat Hanh and the community. And he's like, why are you washing the dishes? This student was like, why am I washing dishes? Hmm. He was like, I think I'm caught by this Zen <laughs> question here. So he answered, I'm washing the dishes to get them clean. Thich Nhat Hanh said, no, you wash the dishes to wash the dishes. Which this student said, this is a lifetime of practice to deeply understand this teaching. But the next thing Tai said was, wash the dishes like you're bathing the baby Buddha, like you're bathing the baby Jesus. So he was saying, really put your full care and heart into this moment. That's the purpose of washing dishes. And so anytime I've found that I disengage from trying to lean into the future and fully put my attention into whatever I'm doing, whether it's the very mundane, feeding my dog or... (laughs) you know, sweeping the kitchen or typing an email. Whatever happens next is much more like the future that I want than if I'm rushing through what I'm doing because whatever's coming next is more important. And I I just had this experience yesterday where I was like, you know, I'm going to pray over my dogs food and <laughs> give her her food i mean not pray but you know i'm going to make an intention so i as i was giving her her bowl of food i said may this food really nourish you to be healthy to be happy to be strong to have a great rest of your day and it was a really different way that i was putting the food down than than usual it made me happy to think oh every time i give her food i can set an intention for how this food might support
0: her i had to bear that in mind when i groggily feed our uh, four cats first thing in the morning <laughs> after they've been howling at me to wake up <laughs> my thoughts are a little less charitable than yours <laughs> <laughs> let's go to uh, the second i think of the of the lessons which i it's kind of intriguing and may be hard for people to grok but it's this notion of trusting the unknown that seems counter-evolutionary. <laughs> we, we I think, evolved to really be wary of the unknown.
1: Yeah, so much of the calibration of our nervous system rests on feeling that we can predict and know something, right, about what's coming. It's a profound state of unease when we don't know. And what I appreciated so much about Vipassana practice, the silent retreats, as I was learning this practice at IMS was in the silence, in the, the many hours of just being attentive to my own mind without interruption for weeks, months on end, was this becoming more comfortable with not knowing I went into the retreat hoping I would come out knowing which way I was going to go with my life. But that didn't happen. It didn't happen any of the retreats I sat. I didn't get an answer about what to do, whether to disrobe or stay. But what did happen was this was this beautiful exchange I had with Joseph Goldstein where I was so upset about not knowing. My life up until then had flowed pretty much according to how I thought. (laughs) There wasn't long times where I didn't know what I was going to do. Very soon after college, I went to Plum Village and I knew, ah, I want to be a nun. And while I was a nun, I was like, oh, this is is what I want to do. And I could see myself doing it for my whole life. And then suddenly I was in this place where I was like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. And... I came to him in an interview, like, just so upset that I didn't know what was to come. And he mentioned this book by Alan Watts, The Wisdom of Insecurity, saying, you know, there's so many more possibilities in the unknown than, than there is, you know, when we've decided this is what it is, what we're going to do, there's just that one possibility. But when we don't know, there's infinite possibilities <laughs> And so he was kind of saying, You can see it as a plus, not a minus. And that was very helpful to realize I really could be okay without knowing what was going to come. And that the more I could let go of this need to know, which was also the need to control and, you know, the need to be able to construct who I am, my identity. That was what was so disturbing was I didn't know who I was for the first time in my life. I really was like, who am I? Who am I going to be? How am I supposed to relate to people? Because I don't know where I'm headed, but all of that time, that silence and the teachings and the community were like, I was learning. I mean, it was really a time where you had to take refuge in every moment, moment by moment, because there was so little to go on after that. It was good in that way that I was really like, all I have is right now. I I don't have anything else. You know, people who are facing terminal illness talk about the power of those kind of diagnoses, making them really take refuge in the present moment like they never had before. So it became this like, well, I have my steps. I have my breath. I have the awareness of what's happening in this moment. That's that's what I have to rely on. And that's enough. I really learned that's enough. I can be happy. I can be at peace, not knowing. I mean, when we think about all the people in the world more and more in this very tortured human society that we live in. People in refugee camps, people in boats trying to get to some shore of safety, people in war That's the experience of a large fraction of our human family is not knowing what the next moment is gonna bring. Someone in a domestic violence situation or a situation of abuse. I mean, it's something that we can find a way to rest in that very challenging space of, of not having security. When I lived in Sri Lanka, I made friends with someone who had left his country because it wasn't a safe or viable place to live. And he left on a fake passport and he got caught and he got put in prison and he was able to get out and apply for asylum. He now has a refugee status and is waiting to be received in the country where his family now lives outside of the country of origin. And I'm still friends with this person, and it's amazing. Every time I talk to him, he never knows when he's going to be resettled. And he is the most graceful and dignified and happy and loving person. He got married in the midst of all this. His beloved came. They married. They had a baby. She's now raising the child in, in this country, waiting for him to finally be able to come and join her. But they talk every day. I mean, they're managing to sustain a relationship long distance, to raise a child together long distance. And he has this inner light of his own practice. He's Catholic. He's translating books into his language from English into his, I mean, he's like, every time I talk to him, he's not down. He's in a totally desperate situation, but he's not taking it as a victim He's seeing what he can do in that situation to support others, to care for others, to share his love, to lift up others. And so it's just a, an example that inspires me greatly of you know, people in all kinds of limbo, liminal spaces where they're not quite here, they're not quite there, and they have to maybe make that work for years, decades at a time. And they do it. And so this, it's possible to be okay when we don't know anything about what's going to happen next.
0: I like how that story and that your friend's posture seems to, you know, one of the ways he's uh, surviving and thriving amidst ambiguity is to have the posture of, you know, how can I help other people? And I think there's, there's definitely a lesson in that. I want to move on to some of the other lessons in the book. And this one goes right to the issue of impermanence. The five daily remembrances. We love the various Buddhist lists on this show. So uh, here's one. Uh, Can you walk us through what these remembrances are and, and why they're useful? Sure.
1: So, yeah, these are five remembrances that the Buddha suggested we try to remember every day, even more often than every day. And the first one is, um, I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape growing old. The second is, I am of the nature to get sick. I cannot escape ill health. The third, I am of the nature to die. I cannot escape death. And the fourth, everyone I love and all that is dear to me are of the nature to change. I cannot escape being separated from them. And the fifth is, my actions are my only true belongings. They are the ground on which I stand. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. So they're helpful because it's a way of desensitization therapy where you bring up what you're (laughs) afraid of and you learn to be with it so that in actual experience it doesn't take you over, the the fear. So it's actually like front-loading, you know, like let's look at all the things that we want to avoid and want to believe aren't going to happen to us and let's really face them head-on. Let's pronounce them out loud. I am of the nature to die. There is no way I can escape death, like every day. Because it is true that we have this kind of unexamined belief somewhere, that it's not going to happen to us. It's going to happen to everyone else, but or somehow we can just, you know, distract ourselves from really fully taking in that truth. So, seeing in our mind's eye, what is it going to look like as I get older? As I lose some of my capacities. Really visualizing what will it be like to be sick and not be able to care for myself? And visualizing ourselves taking our last breath. How do we want to take our last breath? It's important to think about that ahead of time. Do we want to be caught off guard? Like, oh no, I'm not ready. Or do we want to really have prepared well? One of the things I think our practice can be so helpful for is preparing to have a good death. And then you know, seeing that the people we love, if we look back over our lives, we can see that they've changed. You know, we couldn't avoid being separated from some of the people we were close to in the past. That those, you know, those relationships change and and shift and people change and they leave us or we leave them, you know, like really taking that in, that the people who are in our lives today, they won't be around always we won't be around always and then this meditating on our actions as the only thing we get to take with us when we leave this this form in this body that there's nothing else that we can accumulate that gets to go with us that it's it's just what we do in this life the actions that we take, that are the, the things that we have to stand on, that's what carries over. For me, it kind of it's a good reason that they're called the Five Remembrances, because they're so easy to forget or ignore. It's very convenient to not think about those things. And then we start to get to do things that we, we regret in terms of the way we treat people, or the way we treat ourselves, or the way we treat our planet. But if those things are something that we're you know, focused on regularly, then it really makes us ask ourselves, well, if this were the only day I had or the only moment I had, how would I want to live it? And I offer this as a meditation and I, I did this for teenagers. This was an IBME retreat and I wasn't sure if it would, you know, how it would be for folks of that age. And they said, this was hard but it was really good. They could see how it was good medicine, even if it was kind of bitter, to not take things for granted. For me, it's like, you know, how they, in the winter when you go out of your house or apartment, whatever, there's this crispness to the air, this like, whoa, you know, it kind of hits you. That's the quality of these five remembrances. We can get into this sleepy kind of, oh yeah, whatever happens today, doesn't matter, and I'll have tomorrow, I'll have the next day, I'm gonna live to a hundred years old, whatever. That's that kind of voice in the background telling us this moment doesn't matter. We don't need to be fully alive. We don't need to take full care of this moment. And then reading those five remembrances, like that hit of like fresh air of like, oh my God, wake up, (laughs) this is gonna go by really fast. And what do I wanna have to say? about myself at the end of it all. And it matters right now what I do, right now.
0: Another lesson, this seems related in a way, at least in my mind, is gratitude. And I'm curious, how does gratitude help us in times of disruption?
1: Yeah, I know how it helps me whenever I have a a low mood, if I remember, you know, what is there to be grateful for, there is this subtle shift, even if it's not a huge shift, even if whatever I'm upset about or, you know, down about, even if that doesn't change, there's more space. There's more, there's more lightness that I can embrace that difficulty with. And for me, it's a kind of protection our antidote, when we're overcome by whatever difficulties or feeling the pressure, or the intensities, the more we've practiced looking for the good, seeing what we're grateful for under regular circumstances, the easier that is to access in those really difficult moments. And again, kind of like I was saying earlier, There is just this bigger perspective that becomes available when we see, okay, this is really tough, and there's still something that I can connect to that can nourish me right in the midst of this really awful time. I've seen it over and over. I share about it in that chapter on nurturing the good in the book with young people, with children, that it really works. It shifts the way we feel in our bodies. It shifts our emotions. It shifts what we see is possible. And it's not that those difficult experiences need to be pushed away. It's not about, oh, don't suppress something that's painful. But it's like before surgery, you have to be strong enough to get surgery. It's like... Reflecting on what is good is a kind of resourcing, is a way of getting strong enough to look at, to care for, to be with what's painful, what's difficult.
0: Much more of my conversation with Kyra Jewel lingo right after this. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favorite. Did you know that you can get personalized M&M's? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% Happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&M's, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique, custom gifts, and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. Let's do one more lesson before uh, we close out here. And this is a tricky one because it's easy to misinterpret it. But it's accepting what is. And the reason why I say it's easy to misinterpret that is, I sometimes people can hear this as resignation or passivity. So
1: the alternative just doesn't work. Like when, when we don't accept what is, it um, it creates tension, it creates stress, it creates frustration, and a difficult situation becomes worse. Like calling Easy Pass, <laughs> it just which is notorious for being a frustrating experience. You're on the phone for an hour before they get to you and then they can't help you. And they say, okay, we're going to switch you to someone else. And you were on the hold for another 30 minutes. (laughs) Substitute anything, right? Any kind of call center. (laughs) I've actually had some good experiences with EasyPass. So not not to uh, bad talk them, but you know getting mad and yelling at the person, <laughs> and this should not be happening attitude it doesn't doesn't feel that good, right? I mean, maybe there's some sense of like oh, i I told it to them, and they're you know, but you know they're not the ones in the end, usually who are really responsible for whatever we're upset about, and they have families to go back to, and they have to take these calls all day long. Anyway, it just when that's happened to me and it has, when I've gotten really upset, I I leave that experience thinking that that was not useful. That's not how I want to be. That's not how I want to show up. Yes, there, you know, whoever this company is is doing something that's very frustrating and shouldn't happen, but my reactivity to it doesn't get things to happen the way I want them to in general. Like, I've found that when I actually listen, when I'm patient, when I say what I need to say, and I can be firm, and I can say, no, you're at fault, or this shouldn't happen this way. But when I don't let that take me over, but I just, I'm accepting, okay, this is the situation, how can we resolve it? Then my energy goes towards something that's actually useful for me, and hopefully for others. And I leave the situation unscathed. And... So not accepting doesn't tend to be a useful strategy for me. Accepting what is doesn't mean that we get walked on like a doormat. It doesn't mean anything goes or that we don't stand up for ourselves or for others or for those who are being oppressed. But if we can look deeply to see what's the root of this situation, which is usually not the way we look at things. And we don't usually see the, the many complexities that are there. If we're in opposition to someone or something, and we look to see, well, why is that happening? Where does this come from? What has brought this about? That's a perspective that allows us to see, I'm connected to this person. Their life matters to me. My life matters to them. And so where we come from in addressing the difficulty It's coming from a deeper place and it has more impact. It's more effective because I'm seeing, okay, this is your full situation, not just the little bit of it that I choose to focus on. So then if I see your full humanity, then how am I going to engage in this situation that is really difficult for me? So I think, you know, this accepting what is is also... It's like acknowledging we don't have all the answers. We don't see what, for instance, one person's trajectory is in their life, the things that they need to do to learn what they need to learn on this journey that they're on. So it's a bit of humility of saying, okay, this is the way this situation is. This is the way this person is. I would like it to be otherwise. But there may be some bigger logic here that's playing out that actually has a reason, has an importance that I can't see, then can I let go and still advocate for what's important for me and live the way I need to live and stand up in the ways I need to stand up, but at the same time give space for the mystery that I can't conceive of that's also operating in this situation. I mean, there's so many amazing stories, I'm sure, Many of us know in our world of enemies reconciling, where there was this ability to see much deeper than they could see in the beginning. I saw a film recently. I really love this film. It's called The Best of Enemies. It's really a good film, but it's, you know, the ability to see beyond the surface, to see the humanity of someone who we're diametrically opposed to on all levels of our being and seeing that humanity and acting from that place of acknowledging the humanity of our enemy creates enormous possibilities that weren't there before. But that only happens because we're accepting the situation as it is. And then we can do this deeper work of, you know, it's actually, it's a kind of po on or paradox that by accepting what is, we actually can alter it in ways that we can't when we resist what is. There's this Jedi move of softening into this, what we don't understand, what we can't know, and then that shifts us, that shifts the situation, and then these things become possible that weren't possible when we were stuck in an idea of how it should be and resisting how it is.
0: Just in closing here, I want to loop back all the way to the beginning of this conversation when you politely laughed at my alternate title for your book about the poop hitting the fan and the actual title is uh, We Were Made for These Times. Can you just, you know, bring us home here by talking a little bit more about what you mean by that title?
1: Sure. If taking care of this moment is the best way to take care of the future then we have what we need right now we don't have to wait for something to come in the future and that's one of the characteristics of the dharma is it's outside of time This akaliko is the word uh, that that these teachings you don't have to practice them for years and years for them to have an effect they can have an effect immediately they stories of in the Buddha's time, someone listened to a teaching and was immediately enlightened, not having practiced a second before hearing that teaching. So it's not bound by time. So whatever we think we have to do to become who we need to be, it's not the case that who we need to be is somewhere in the future. Master Lin Chi, founder of the Rinzai tradition of Zen, my school of Zen, says we already are what we want to become. So all of these are different ways of saying what this wonderful teaching of Clarissa Pinkola Estes, this profound Latina storyteller and author and changemaker. And this was in a letter she wrote to a young activist. She said, we were made for these times. We were made for this exact plane of engagement, We have everything we need. All the things we've been doing up until now have prepared us for this moment. So as we look at our world and the extreme challenges we're facing, which no generation of humans has had to face, the climate crisis and the pandemic and the racial and political and economic crises, wealth disparity, each of us has what it takes right now, to show up and to be a force of transformation right now. And so I think for me, I, I chose that title for this book because we can get very intimidated by what we're facing and feel that this, you know, this isn't going to end well, or we don't have what it takes. But in us is everything that has come before and all the components that are needed are already here. So this image I use in the book of a caterpillar that dissolves in the chrysalis and reassembles into this butterfly, but how scary that process of dissolving is. All the elements to make a butterfly are already there in the caterpillar. They just reposition and shift And time and space, you know, is a factor too. But all that we need is already here. And so the sense that we don't need to see ourselves as drowning in this very tough situation that our whole species is facing, but that we need to go with this flow. We need to swim. We need to stay with our heads above the water and move with this. And we can move with this. We can do this. We don't know what it's going to bring, but we can meet what this is if we can meet this moment right here right now if we can care for ourselves, care for each other right in this moment. Then that is what the next moment will be made of.
0: Kyra Jewel, thank you very much mm-hmm. for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me, Dan.
0: Thanks again to Kyra Jewel. Always great to talk to her. And if you want even more of Kyra Jewel, she recorded a series of meditations in the 10% Happier app to help you practice finding your way during upheaval, loss, or transition. Check it out by downloading the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps, tapping on the Singles tab, and searching for the topic, which we're calling Made for These Hard Times. Or you can just click on the link in the show description to play those meditations. The show is made by Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poi-Poi-Poyant with audio engineering from our friends over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode with Reed Hoffman. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
3: I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best,